You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Um, we'll get started, everyone. Um, welcome to, to Overseas Development Institute for the event, um, let's get the name right, Managing Development Agencies from Reform to Renewal. Um, we wanted to have this conversation today because I think we spend a lot of time talking about what aid agencies and their implementers either can or cannot deliver. Um, but we've got a, an excellent panel here today who can talk a lot about the how, how aid organisations are organized, structured, um, some of the tools and processes they use. Um, so we want to dig into the detail of the how today because we know that that really matters for actually what um, aid organizations and their implementers and partners can, can deliver on the ground. Um, so I want to thank everyone firstly for taking time out of your busy World Cup viewing schedule. I know that Belgium Panama is starting imminently and so if you do want to watch that this is your last chance to escape. Um, three questions today or maybe four uh, depending on how you look at it. So the first is, um, how should uh, aid organisations be governed and structured? The second one is on, what are the pros and cons of results-based management? And are there alternatives to value for money? That's us sneaking in two in one there. And how can uh, empowering staff be made tangible and still comply with the need to maintain formal accountability to citizens, managers and politicians? So these questions were somewhat guided by the availability of our panellists today and we really wanted to get into some of these issues with people that have been writing and thinking about these things for a number of years. Um, so first I'd like to introduce Nalima Gulrajani to my left, who's a senior research fellow uh, in the development strategy and finance team here at ODI. Uh, she applies organisational and management theory to study trends and practices in the field of international development cooperation and she was formerly the assistant professor in public management and development at LSE. Um, I'm going to go to Dan while I still remember. Dan, above to my right and behind you over there, uh, is Dan Honig. He's an assistant professor of international um, development at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And his recent book just out is Navigation by Judgment, Why and When Top-Down Management of Foreign Aid Doesn't Work. Um, then to the left of uh, Nalima over here, uh, we have Val Ganendran, Director of Finance and Delivery at the Department for International development and has worked um, for the British government for nearly 20 years on international development policy. And finally, at the end there, Pablo Yanguas, uh, last but not least, a uh, research fellow in, at the Effective States and Inclusive Development Research Centre and Global Development Institute, that's a real mouthful, at the University of Manchester. Uh, and his recent book, Why We Lie About Aid, um, is also just out um, and we're really looking forward to hearing from him on that today. So my colleagues in the development strategy and finance team organised this event, um, partly because they have their advisory uh, panel in town at the moment, so a big welcome to those people who are part of that advisory uh, panel. Um, and that development strategy and finance team, um, thanks to the contributions of some of these people, uh, supports agencies, development finance actors to respond to evolving trends, challenges and risks. There are also, I'm told, hundreds of people uh, watching this event online. So welcome to everyone there. Um, and I have an iPad somewhere under this paper. And so if you do send in your questions, we will, we will get to them today. Finally, if you could put your phones on um, silent, but if you want to tweet about it, we strongly encourage it. It's hashtag better aid. You can't argue with that. Um, and actually, the final, final point, if there's a fire, go out the front door. 
and the bathrooms are just by the lifts over there. So, without further ado, first question um, I want to put to Nalima. It's how should development agencies be governed and structured? And I really, I mean, there's a lot that could come under that question, right? But the thing we want to talk about first is um, the issue of mergers between um, development agencies and other departments. And I know that you, you've written a paper for ODI recently on this. So, you know, what does the evidence tell us about when and how or if mergers are, are effective? Okay. Thank you. Um, I have three minutes in which to answer that question. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a mouthful. But basically, I wanted to start by saying that I think there's a propaganda war currently being waged against foreign aid. And in this country, it's very colorfully illustrated with headlines like fat cat bureaucrats, 300K to grow coconuts in the South Pacific. Um, but while it might be less colorful in other countries, um, the UK is not unique. Um, and there are other countries where I think there is a kind of strong reputational and legitimacy crisis um, governing development agencies. And this creates a perception of weakness and builds a constituency, really, for major organizational change, like reform, like mergers and reforms. So mergers really should be seen against the backdrop, I think, of this reputational crisis and legitimacy crisis, a deliberate act to bring together development agencies, development departments, alongside other government departments, um, often ministries of foreign affairs. In 2004, we had um, a merger between NORAD and the MFA. In 2013, Canadian CETA with Global Affairs Canada to create Global Affairs Canada. And in 2013, also Australian aid into DFAT. The mergers are signifiers and symbols of transformation and of a commitment to improving um, an agency, whether or not those improvements are actually achieved in practice. I think they're also a way to exercise political control, especially if development agencies are perceived as weak. Um, in 2004, the merger of NORAD was, was largely driven by the Minister of Development um, wanting to minister or assert authority over NORAD much more than it had been able to previously. CEDA's merger um, and the creation of GAC also came after long-standing criticism of its effectiveness. Point being, mergers are presented as technocratic fixes, but I think are responses to inherently political problems and dilemmas. And what my paper really tries to show is that the justifications for mergers on the grounds of efficiency, impact, and policy coherence, really, there's a mixed record for the achievement of those results in practice. So to answer the question, if I have one minute to spare, mm -hmm. in terms of minute. how agencies should be structured and governed, um, I don't think mergers appear to deliver the goods in any real convincing way. Um, the political crisis for aid, however, means that talk of mergers are it's likely to here to stay. And I hate to say it, but the fact that DFID remains the only independent development ministry amongst the DAC makes it, I think, quite vulnerable to a merger. Ultimately, I think we can get results, efficiency, and coherence in any structural form. Um, that, but that political stewardship is perhaps the most important driver of performance. And unfortunately, it's that stewardship and leadership that's sorely lacking. And finally, I'll just conclude by saying the best thing I think we can do is, if mergers are here to stay, to consider safeguards. So if a merger does happen, we can protect the development project from dilution and distortion. And perhaps later on, I'll get a chance to sort of present some of those ideas for those safeguards that I present in the paper as well. Perfect. Thanks, Neil. I'm perhaps a little bit mean here. I'm going to turn straight to Vel, um, because we know that this is a really thorny issue um, for, for DFID, and it's a very political issue. I suppose the question for someone working for DFID is, 
you know, what role do you see for DFID? I mean, DFID is the, still the, the only independent department, as, as Liam has mentioned. What role does DFID have to play in money that is being spent, aid money that is being spent uh, by other government departments? What, 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 what's your role in that? Um, thanks, Craig. Um, and firstly, can I just say thank you for inviting me uh, to this event. I'm a finance director, and you don't normally get invited to things as a finance director. So, um, <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Um, I will answer that question, but I did. I do think it's important to kind of understand some of the wider, um, some of the wider kind of factors that are at play here. And I, I kind of put these into three buckets. The first is, you know, quite a deep-seated, both cultural and substantive belief in DFID that the best development comes from local ownership and empowering our country teams to kind of make decisions. And that means we have a very decentralised model. So keep that in your head. At the same time, we are a government department. That means. Uh, with a protected budget that's under intense and growing scrutiny, which means rightly we have to make sure that we are getting assurance from those frontline teams about how they're spending that money. So that then leads to a lot of uh, process. And then thirdly, recognising the wider UK kind of fiscal environment, uh, our ability to recruit more people is, um, let's say, not straightforward. So, um, so those three factors are at play with DFID, and, and we are constantly trying to manage that balance, work out how we support our country teams and how we continually change. So that's, it, it's just worth sort of having that organisational backdrop in, in the head. And then sort of what are the, as we go forward, what are some of the factors? One is definitely this OG, what other government departments are doing with ODA. Um, let me get the formal bit out of the way. DFID is an independent department. It is government policy to keep the, you know, DFID as an independent department. I personally don't worry a huge amount about DFID being absorbed into the FCO. Partly, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And secondly, um, you know, if it did, we would work out a way of, you know, dealing with that. So, um, so uh, it's not my job to kind of answer that question, but I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I do think we need to think about this policy coherence issue that's um, Nalima flags in her paper. I think we get a lot of that already. I don't think it's you know, a merger is one way of getting policy coherence, but you can have a lot of other ways of getting policy coherence. So I think let's just make sure we're using those first. <coughs> uh, there's a lot of talk about the cross-government funds. I'm happy to talk about those. I actually think they do useful things. We, there are challenges, but we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What can we do? At the moment, DFID is providing basically a lot of technical assistance to other departments. Um, there is a very live question about what that offer is and how we grow that uh, in light of you know, a lot of the public scrutiny. So I think that's, um, that's a, a good question and one we're thinking about very actively. Thanks, I might come back to you on that, but later. <laughs> so, uh, Pablo, I wanted to come on to you next because your book subtitle is, you know, The Messy Politics of Change, right? But what we're talking about here is, as Lima's mentioned and Vela's mentioned, is, is about our own messy politics, right? So I'm interested in your reflections. I mean, it doesn't have to just be about the UK. There are many other um, representatives here from different kinds of agencies on how the, the politics of aid informs these kinds of debates, you know, whether, whether, whether we should be merging, how we should be structuring. I mean, what have you seen? And you know, you've talked a bit in, in your book about it. So, I think um, Nilima is absolutely right that we need to examine the motivations for some of these decisions. Um, if you pay attention to, to this sector, some of them are quite obvious. And some of the, ti the timing is, is often quite obvious too. Like, uh, some of these mergers back happened during or after the, the Great Recession. And, and they happened on the basis of a justification of austerity and, and cost saving. But in fact, where conservative agendas, maybe uh, aid is a, is a very 
easy target of opportunity. It's a very easy uh, bargaining chip to use with, uh, with certain corners of your base as a politician, especially with fiscal conservatives or those who oppose internationalism, those who oppose the welfare state. It's easier to throw aid to them than it is to dismantle the NHS or to dismantle the foreign office. Um, so a lot of this is opportunism, which is not to say that there are not legitimate grounds for potential mergers or a subordination of, of aid agencies to um, political uh, to, to diplomacy to political objectives, especially when aid is pursuing political goals or even when it's pursuing politically smart methods where you can benefit from interfacing with di diplomatic staff. But also think of the outcomes. If mergers lead to a reduced space for creativity in, in, in an aid agency, if it leads to a much more limited understanding of the aims, or if it leads to the complete abandonment of, of things that we would consider to be socially desirable as aid objectives, then I think it's a, it's a negative. Thank you. Um, Dan, um, I'm looking over my shoulder as if he's there. Um, over to you. I mean, I, I, in preparing for this event, um, I took a look at, I was looking at your website, right? And you've got a, you've got a, a quote up on there from James Q. Wilson. Uh, Organization matters, even in government agencies. The key difference between more and less successful bureaucracies has less to do with finances, client populations, or legal arrangements than with organizational systems, right? So we're talking a bit about this sort of saying, oh, we, you know, no matter whether it's merged or not, we have to get the systems right. And, and we, you know, we can make it work no matter what, even if it comes together. But it'd be nice to hear from you, Dan, based on your research, um, you know, what does it even mean to get the organizational systems right for an aid bureaucracy? It's not easy. Yeah, I first just to, to echo that it's not at all easy. Um, and, you know, I guess I guess for me, the question is, you know, it strikes me that a few folks, uh, you know, in fact, everyone talked in some way about how the question isn't the formal structure, but what the kind of outputs or, um, you know, implications of that structure are for what happens in the field. And so, you know, to me, getting the organizational system right starts with uh, something Vel said, which is uh, empowering country teams, right? Uh, putting those closest to the action uh, in charge of what happens, particularly when we have the kinds of projects, the kinds of interventions that are really going to benefit from local information, local knowledge, et cetera. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I think so in my, in my research, one of the things I do is I ask uh, people on the recipient countryside uh, how empowered people are in the field. So that is, you know, I'm asking people who uh, work for aid management offices in developing countries, you deal with a lot of donors, who needs to go back to headquarters more, uh, and who is more able to kind of make decisions locally. Uh, and while DFID scores uh, quite high on that measure, let me say, uh, there's not a kind of systematic relationship between agency independence uh, and a high sort of autonomy or empowerment score, um, which suggests that uh, it's not merely or even mostly formal structure that dictates uh, what actually happens in terms of these kinds of locus of control, autonomy, independence kind of issues. And so, you know, organizational systems, of course, rest on political decisions. Uh, but in some ways, it seems to me it's more easy for politics to get it wrong than get it right. So that is to say, for political reasons, we can uh, bring in rules and constraints uh, that preclude people from operating in the way that's likely to best deliver development assistance. Uh, but if we avoid doing that, that doesn't mean problem solved. That means 
uh, we just have a whole new set of questions we need to ask about kind of the internal management of, uh, of the agencies um, and uh, control and delegation and reporting. And as you suggested, we'll talk about earlier, maybe accountability with it. Yeah, great. Thanks, Dan. We'll, we'll come back to the, the accountability question in a, in a bit more depth and, and kind of or empowered accountability, as I think Diffid puts it, within its, within its smart rules. I want to give the chance before we, we have to rush through a lot of stuff today, and we'll get to come back to some of it in the Q&A. I want to come back to you briefly, Nalima, because um, we didn't get to hear the chance because of the short time around some of the examples that you might give around um, comparing between different agencies, right? Because the, the detail really matters on some of these questions for then how things actually unfold in reality. So I wonder if you could give us a bit of detail on some of, some of these examples. I mean, I can certainly present you with some of the details around the mixed record for achieving mm. efficiency, impact, and um, policy coherence. So on the efficiency measure, um, if you look at Australia and Canada post-merger, um, the data is collected three years post-merger, 2013. The merger does appear to have tipped both countries to a DAC average, so it's lowered administrative cost as collected by the DAC and that those measures are notoriously unreliable, but they're the best measure we have, best proxy for efficiency. Um, but what's interesting is you need to interpret that, that improving efficiency post-merger um, by looking at factors that might also have driven that increased efficiency. So for example, there were a large number of public sector layoffs in both countries that occurred unrelated to the merger itself that might be driving those mm -hmm. results. Um, there was also, there also seems to have been a desire, particularly in Australia, to transition away from direct implementation of programs to really be much more a commissioning agency. Um, and interestingly enough, DFID, um, the independent um, agency in Model 4 in the DAX categories of these models, performs better than both Canada and Australia on efficiency mm -hmm. uh, on this metric. Which, which begs the question, <laughs> why merge? Um, if you have a, an example, very prominent example of a of a consolidated um, development ministry that is doing well on efficiency. Um, on coherence um, as well, you seem to find, in, if we look at the proxy we use for coherence, policy coherence, um, there's an ebb and flow to performance on coherence with Australia and Canada. And in some years post-merger, you have worse scores on policy coherence than pre-merger. Mm. Um, and there, there's some literature to suggest that post-merger, there can be challenges of bringing together different communities and cultures of practice across the development diplomatic divide in particular, mm. where timelines, clarity of purpose, and different results are sought. Um, so perhaps I don't see a merger as, as benign as perhaps as you do. I think there are serious micro-level organizational issues that have to be um, fleshed out. Um, and I think ideally the first step towards a merger would be building that political, political support to make the merger a success. In other words, the merger will only be as successful as the political mm -hmm. support it has um, mm -hmm. and, the, and, the, and the ability really to safeguard the, the integrity of the development side in particular because I think the organization being merged is more vulnerable than the host to which it's merged to. Um, yeah. yeah. That's perfect. I, I want to immediately come to, oh, Val, you, you've got one anyway. I'm not even going to ask a question then. Yeah, let's, let's hear your comment. Um, well, look, um, I don't want to say a, a merger is benign or not, or I don't really, really even want to formally comment on any, any of that because it's, it's political. Um, I guess what I want to say, though, is, is there are big structural and organizational questions for Diffid, um, of which I would not put a merger top. I mean, there are other yeah. questions like, uh, what's our role as countries get richer? You know, do we shift from grant-based aid to um, other types of financial instruments? 
what does that mean for what our people are doing? Are they spending less time managing money and more time building relationships and influencing? I think that's a big structural organisational question for us. Similarly, I sort of, um, I think this question of DFID as a strategic commissioning organisation, you know, we enter into agreements with partners, whether that's multilaterals or NGOs or private sector, to deliver development impact for us. Uh, and we make that make versus buy decision that in different ways in all different places. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a very big question for us about how we make that decision and how we at least bring more consistency and coherence. So I think basically I think there's, I don't want to kind of, I, I just think the merger question can take us down a, a path mm -hmm. that um, may or may not be useful, but I think there's lots of other important questions that I don't want to lose sight of in the kind of structural governance space for different. That's really helpful. It um, leads me on to our, our second, second question, actually, because I think one of the, the key ways that I've seen DFID, but also a range of other um, development agencies try and uh, set incentives to kind of de deliverate well is through uh, results, uh, value for money. You know, they're both, both in the narrative, but also in the tools and the processes that we've seen used, right? Um, particularly over the last uh, decade or so, but it stretches back further than that in, in aid history. And so, you know, we have, we have the question, which is what are the pros and cons of results-based management and are there alternatives to value for money, which has a little bit of a slight criticism in it already. It's partly because we shaped, we shaped the question for Pablo, right? Because we wanted to hear you know, his book, Why We Lie About Aid, has some criticisms of, of, um, of, of results and, and value for money. So in many respects, we know the pros and cons, right, Pablo? Like we, we, have, a, we have a sense of them, of results-based management. Um, yet my own sense from my research is that we struggle, despite knowing some of the cons, to escape them. And so I'd, I'd wonder from your perspective and your research, then what do you see as the, the, if there are the problems, and if you agree with me, you know, what, what, are the, what are those major challenges? What do you see as the biggest challenge? And have you got some creative ideas for getting around it? Because we, to my mind, we're still stuck a little bit. Okay, so let me start with, with a question and indulge me. Uh, was the French Revolution successful? Depends when you stop your story, right? If you stop in 1794, the terror, Everybody was dying. It's a disaster. Although, you know, a very small-minded VFM person may say, we expected one king's head cut, and we got it. <laughs> so A for that program. If you go to 1804, you have Napoleon, who's a dictator. Bad. But then he's instituting sort of a meritocratic system, which is sort of good. But then he invades other countries, which is bad. But then that invasion facilitates the diffusion of enlightened ideas to other countries that were not exposed to those ideas, planting the seeds of liberalism in many countries in Western Europe, so that's good. This is all to say that a lot in development is uh, dependent on uncertainty and contingency. Value for money is obviously, and results-based management are, I would say, even moral obligations in a, in a liberal democracy. You're spending taxpayers' money. You have an obligation to account and to explain how you've spent things and why you, you took the decisions that you took. But a lot of the value for money pressure or incentive assumes a certain calculability, assumes that we're dealing with environments of risk in which we can anticipate and forecast based on what we know right now. When in fact a lot of development processes, especially those that have to do more with institutional change, are subject to uncertainty. We don't even know which players will be relevant two years down the line. We don't even know wh whether their preferences will change or what catalysts may completely throw our assumptions um, out. So. It is th there that I'm worried about value for money. The fact that the frameworks, as employed in a perverse way, maybe not by design, but by the inertia that we have, 
are leading us to what Andrew Natsios called the, the more measurable but less transformative areas of development assistance. I do think that there are ways that you can work with existing frameworks, um, like log frames, theories of change, and, and so on. Um, theories of change were supposed to be empowering, right? Um, and in fact, when you're dealing with uncertainty, you need a theory or some values to guide yourself. But theories of change tend to be the, some of the weakest elements of, of business cases, for instance, for DFID and for pr and provider bits. Um, log frames tend to be very constraining. They tend to be straitjackets that do not allow for, for creativity. They can, but that takes a number of things. It takes practitioners who want to do it. It takes providers who feel that this is a worthy pursuit despite some potential risks to their business. It takes DFID SROs who say, yeah, let's tackle some interesting problem. It takes DFID M&E people who are open-minded. It takes DFID uh, contract management people who are not going to be put off by a bit of uncertainty. And, and it's too complicated at times to get all those pieces together. But I think it's doable, right? But I think it's a conversation that needs to involve more people, not just the external speakers or opinion makers or insiders in DFID. It applies throughout the chain of implementation. I want to ask other people about this, but I'm going to come back to you very briefly on the issue of uh, the latter part of my question, right, around creative solutions to this. Because what, what I hear there is that if you have the right people in place, you can do the alternatives to a narrow, you know, a better understanding of results and value for money. Um, but is that enough? You know, is that enough as a suggestion to say that, that, that we, if you just get the right people in place? Because you know, Natsios or other people may have said that you know, we've had that criticism for a while, but getting past it has proved really difficult. And I think we have to have something a bit more than, than that, right? So yes. what so do you think? You're right, in the sense that you can get all the right people. And it, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody who has a title on adaptive development or anything like that. A lot of seasoned professionals think adaptively and, and politically already. Uh, but those constellations of creative people can very easily dissipate, right? And what you see, if you look at DFID offices, for instance, sorry to specify DFID, but DFID is sort of a leader in thinking differently about, about, about problems in development. What you see is that interesting projects pop up as professionals move from office to office, basically. There's no continuity of effort because there's no internalization. Part of it is that there's no real incentive or directive to record knowledge about how decisions were made and why certain decisions were made. Lessons are not really kept. Lessons travel with the people who learn them. Um, and this creates a risk for DFID in particular, but for all donors in that, how long can you keep in your employment those risk takers? when they're being told over and over again that they're not doing the right thing. At some point they will leave and they will go to the private sector or they will go to the charity sector. And then who will be designing and commissioning the really interesting projects? Who will be providing the political space for um, those individuals to do, as Dan would say, navigate uh, by judgment? Great, I'm actually going to come straight to you, Val, because I just feel like it makes a lot of sense. Um, we've, had we've had conversations before um, about, you know, DFID, and results, gender, and value for money, and how, how if, if it needs to be reframed, how it might be done. Um, so I'm interested to get your, you know, if you can provide any update or any, you know, sense of where DFID is going or attempting to go on these agendas uh, in the light of some of the criticisms and some of the evolution that's going on in the organization. Sure, I'll give it a go. Um, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Pablo said, um, and it comes actually to the third question on, on sort of on people and empowerment, but, but maybe just in terms of where we are at this. So uh, we've been thinking about this, you know, where to take results, the results gender and DFID. Uh, we've been thinking about it for a while. Um, 
partly informed by ODI's work, but also the IDC and, and lots of um, work out there now. Um, so, so the kind of things I've got in my mind, and I scribbled them uh, down because this is very, very live for us at the moment. So the first thing for me is really getting clear the distinction between targets and results-based management. And I think um, all this got brigaded kind of under the results agenda as it first evolved in DFID. You know, we were set targets, get 11 million children into school. Um, I can't remember the other ones, but um, those, that was very, something I was very closely involved in. Still have the scars. Um, <laughs> so that, that, but targets drive a lot of those incentive effects that, that others have written about and know far more than I do. So what we're trying to do is make sure we're clear about the difference between targets and results-based management. They're two different things, and let's make sure we're really clear about that. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is acknowledging all these limitations that uh, the result associated with the results agenda. Some stuff can't be measured, governance, security, those kind of really difficult institution building, all that stuff that's really difficult to measure. The drive to what you can measure, the risk that you drive people to vaccines as opposed to systems, whatever. The risk of short-termism over long-termism, the devaluing of theories of change, all of that stuff I think is, we just have to kind of, I think as an organisation, acknowledge that there are challenges and limitations. And so this comes to your point, Pablo, making sure we don't tell people off for doing the wrong thing. We don't want to be doing that. We want to say, actually, there is some validity in those concerns. So I think that's the second thing. And how do we create a culture that sort of kind of pulls us, moves us on from where we are at the moment? Um, that said, you know, one of the, the discussions I'm always in, involved in with people is, uh, well, how do we make sure people, uh, our staff, still recognise they have to be able to articulate what they're achieving? So we can't just say results don't matter. It doesn't matter what you're achieving. And, you know, you can, this is the example I use a lot, you can spend millions on paying salaries into a health system uh, in the hope of getting system reform and buying enough influence to change policy, which may work, may not work, but you need to be able to articulate something about what you're achieving there over time. So we still need to maintain incentives on that and, and finding a way to square that, pulling, getting the results agenda in the place that's fit for purpose without telling people it's okay just to forget about what you, the story about what you're achieving. That's something we're struggling with. And then lastly, how do we use this stuff in decision making? So, you know, there's a lot of talk about unit cost data. If it costs uh, $500 to get a girl into school in Somalia and it costs $10 in Ethiopia, you know, can you, can you just not put all the money in Ethiopia instead of Somalia? That kind of... Um, unit cost data, there's a lot of uh, interest in us being able to get to that point. Obviously, we all know the, the challenges in that kind of data, but how we use, how we bring a, a higher level of quantitative underpinning to our decision making is, a, is something we have to crack, and we haven't quite cracked that yet. Um, as opposed to sort of, at the moment, it's based very much on country level resource allocation decisions. So that kind of portfolio level decision making, uh, you know, we need to find a way to answer that question. I'm going to come to Nalima first. I might come back to you, Pablo, if we have time. Um, I, I know you've worked with a lot of different agencies you know, since joining ODI. I know a lot about the different ones you work with, including CEDA and others. And I, I wonder, you know, it's easy for people like us, in fact, to write up you know, criticisms or something of how we've seen things unfold. But have we got decent examples of how different organizations have approached this and then it's been written up well. You know, like how do you get that balance right between some of the tensions that Val's talking about, like using quantification, um, but not overdoing it so that people feel constrained by it? You know, what have you seen in working with different agencies on that? Yeah, I mean, I want to answer your question sure. and link back to your comment about 
the need for staff to be able to articulate what they're achieving. And I think that, that requires us to trust that, um, that explanation for what they are achieving, particularly if it's not conducive to measurement, let's say. And I think sort of to answer your question about comparative evidence, um, I mean, it's interesting to look at Sweden, I think, um, where they sort of started from a place around 2006 where results-based management was very much a kind of central paradigm in managing um, foreign aid. And um, in 2016, um, there was a lot of frustration, essentially, with that paradigm. And by 2016, the government asked a special commission on how to inculcate trust in the public administration as broader, a part of a broader public management reform system. A de delegation on trust was charged with inspiring the public sector at all levels to alter the kind of RBM logic. Um, it had no formal authority, this delegation, but really a mandate to propose administrative systems that could be built on improving trust. Now, I think this, this example of Sweden really is an attempt to really change the parameters, the public narrative around value for money and results-based management, really trying to change what we mean by accountability and trying to encourage trust in our civil servants. Um, and the report from this commission came out last week and suggested that governance really should be designed so it does, so it does not involve more detailed control than necessary. So mm -hmm. there's a de like there's a minimum, right, that we use for control. Culture and leadership should have a much more prominent role. Target and performance management should be less detailed, more enabling, more closely designed in consultation with professional frontline workers and so on. Um, and I think Sweden's a great example of trying to change that public narrative on accountability, and I know we're going to come to that later. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast, you look at the UK. The UK scores one of the lowest on the Edelman 2018 barometer survey on trust, in particular in the public institutions. Mm -hmm. Only Ireland, South Africa, Japan, and Russia um, and are score lower, and the UK is lower than the US, China, Brazil, Colombia, India many of countries you question sort of governance arrangements in. Mm. And I think audit societies, as Michael, to use Michael Power's term, are predicated on a lack of trust. Mm. And, and the worry that I have is that we don't have the trust in this country in our public institutions that mm. would allow us to go beyond the kind of narrow conceptualization of results-based management and all the, the kind of disadvantages that that might bring. Yeah, thanks, Liam. I think it's a nice transition to our, our third question, actually, Dan. So sorry to, to not give you a shot on this, but I think it's really relevant. I mean, the issue of trust when you're talking about empowering staff and them still being accountable, right? This is a massive, this is a massive issue. Um, so the formal question that we have for you is around how can empowering staff be made tangible and still comply with the need to maintain formal accountability? Your book title is Navigation by Judgment, right? So um, the, the natural and, you know, if I was being a skeptic, um, you'd say, if you're navigating by judgment, where is, where is the accountability? Um, how would you respond to that as a question? You know, how, how do you see that? Yeah, so um, let me talk, if I could, just for, I don't know, 30 seconds about the book's findings as they, as they you know, sort of relate to the conversation I think we're having. Um, which is, you know, I use eight case studies and uh, the world's largest database of development project outcomes, which is... Uh, 14,000 projects across nine donors across 40 years, across 180 recipient contexts, um, to ask questions of when uh, tight controls are generating results and when they aren't in some sense, right? 
and what kinds of controls are associated with what kinds of outcomes and what kinds of contexts. And so, you know, in that sense, I mean, I guess where I start is, you know, Vell talked about the, the quantitative underpinnings of results. And I would say that uh, one of the things I hope to kind of contribute to this conversation is the idea that I think we have reasonably good quantitative evidence that our, uh, our sort of simplification of results, as you, I think, very eloquently put it, into kind of targets and what's measurable does have deleterious consequences and has them differentially based on the kind of environment we're in and the kind of task uh, we're undertaking. You know, when we're trying to real build a road, those kinds of controls might, might work quite, quite well. Uh, when we're trying to manage a transportation system, much less so. And so, you know, how do we square uh, judgment with accountability? Well, I would say crowding out judgment is, uh, if crowding out judgment is undermining results, it's not obvious to me how, if, if the tools we're calling accountability are actually hurting the interventions around which we are trying to be accountable, that we are getting much out of this accountability narrative, you know? So that is to say, if that uh, target for 11 million uh, children, right, leads to, as Lant Pritchett has put it, a schooling ain't learning kind of outcome where we get people in schools, but not a lot of learning uh, as a result, it's not obvious to me that that accountability tool, if indeed that's the outcome, has driven us towards the direction we want accountability to take us. So what does it mean to be accountable? Uh, you know, I think there's a ton of wisdom in uh, everyone's responses to the last question, which is, you know, it's about kind of turning accountability from counting, uh, from making to something more like making account, uh, as Nalima was talking about in kind of the Swedish context. And, and that also depends very much on sort of issues of trust. But you know, I think the in the public sector, in the UK and otherwise, uh, we see examples of accountability that's quite consistent with navigation by judgment. Uh, when a surgeon performs a complicated surgery, that surgery is reviewed, that surgeon is reviewed by a community of peers uh, who think about what the kind of appropriate actions would have been in a similar circumstance and whether uh, and what can be learned from the particular incident. Um, so, you know, judging judgment requires, and whether it's been operated, whether it's been kind of executed correctly, doesn't mean just kind of throwing any sort of standard of performance and accountability to the wind. Uh, I think it means relying on different kinds of tools, tools that may require more trust, both uh, of the agency and within the agency through uh, as I think Pablo put it, the chain of delegation, uh, the chain of delivery that we see in aid. Um, you know, and fundamentally, it seems to me that uh, uh, if formal accountability, as it's currently constituted, uh, means we are getting less out of our interventions, then we need to rethink, we don't need to rethink the interventions, we need consistent with that accountability, we need to rethink what we call accountability and what it is to be accountable. Because if before what we had was a false sense of our success, well, that was a, a pyrrhic victory. Uh, and what instead we need is to maximize results for taxpayers uh, and for beneficiaries. Uh, and anything that carries us in that direction uh, can't help but be a step towards being more accountable uh, on both ends of the kind of delegation chain, both up to taxpayers uh, and down to recipients. 
Thanks, Dan. I, I want to I want to come straight back to you if that's all right, just to follow up on on something sure. that you mentioned. I mean. It, it links back to our second question as well around results-based management. The big, one of the big criticisms that people typically have is that it can be gamed, right? Like, and so you set up a results artifice and then you just go and do what you're doing and, and you, can, you can game the system. It seems to me that in navigation by judgment, there's, there's equal possibilities for gaming, um, for kind of, every, you chalk everything up to learning. The surgeon gets things wrong, oh, it was a learning experience, it's fine, but actually someone's died, right? So <coughs> you, you, there's, there's a real challenge there uh, of how you can have a rigorous process that still allows navigation by judgment that you know, works with people's expertise. So you know, I wonder what response you'd have to that, that, that this is an even more gameable system <laughs> than, than the one that we're you know, arguably trying to replace. Yeah, so first I, I wanna say, I think we use the word gaming a little bit inconsistently when we talk about it in the kind of quantitative results sense. So that is to say, to use the example that you know, was put on the board earlier. Uh, if you drive to putting kids in schools because that is what the target is, I would say you aren't gaming that target. You're responding in a totally consistent way to the kind of measures, right? So I, I see gaming as uh, when you sort of distort the measure to serve your own interests internal to what that measure is. And, you know, I would say that we need to think about both those problems. We need to think about both when we're not driving to the right kind of codification of results, and when driving to that codification opens up opportunities for you know waste, fraud, abuse, mistakes, those kinds of things. And so you know it strikes me that uh, I don't know that I think maybe the rest of the room doesn't share my prior on this, but I don't know that I think that relying on judgment is inherently more gameable than relying on measures when those measures are kind of these sort of broad summary statistics that don't capture what, in fact, uh, we may want out of our interventions. Um, you know, that said, I also don't think there's nothing we can do to limit uh, the kind of risk that I agree with you is real in that kind of a system. And so, you know, the surgeon doesn't get to chalk everything up to learning because if the surgeon keeps making similar kinds of mistakes, there are consequences, right? You know, if, uh, I don't know, since you mentioned it's a World Cup game for England today, right? You know, if I'm, a, if I'm in Man U's training academy and I keep making the same kinds of errors in judgment, I'm not going to get promoted uh, to the next team. Um, that also doesn't mean the first time I make an error, the right response is to send me back to, I don't know, Milton Keynes or, from, or wherever <laughs> I came from, right? So yeah, there's, a, there's a balance there. Um, and, uh, and that balance has to be achieved through a kind of understanding of what it means to get better at these things. And that link, links pretty, uh, pretty directly to the kind of personnel management story that uh, both Vel and Pablo were pointing to earlier. Um, I think we make a mistake that thinking that because something involves people, it can't be systematic. That is to say, one thing you hear a lot in the aid world is, well, you know, it really depends who's in the job, as if by saying that, we're saying, well, it's random who's in the job. You know, it could be somebody who does the job well. It could be someone who does, does, does the job poorly. But one thing that, in my mind, is subtext to uh, all of the comments made earlier is that who's in the job is a consequence of how we design the job, right? So when we think about managing performance and the structure of our agencies, we're not just changing how people perform in them today. We're also changing who comes into the agencies and who leaves the agencies in a way that affects the kind of composition of workers 
in a way that is deeply related to, to what the structure is. And so, you know, is there a risk that if we chalk things up to judgment, we'll get fraud? Yes, of course there is. You know, we, we worry that police after action reviews may bias towards certain kinds of actions and away from others. But that doesn't mean we throw out the review process. That's to steal from Vell, throwing out in a different way the baby with the bathwater. What we do is we think about what the right sort of mixes of, you know, to steal from Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Um, we can engage in trust. We can engage in judgment-based accountability. Um, we can engage in something other than numbers and, and quantitative underpinnings as the sole tool of what it means to generate results uh, and still do accountability along those lines. Um, and to me, you know, it just comes down to, in some places, counting every penny is part of making sure every penny counts. And where it is, we should count every penny and drive towards those results. Uh, but where it isn't, uh, we should seek reasonable alternatives. And are we going to get that perfect the first time? Probably not. But you know, we need to experiment in our organizational systems, in our management technology, in just the way we think a, about experimenting in a whole bunch of other ways. Uh, we have to move know, on, Dan. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. We have to move Thanks. on because we're going to run out of time. I want to get some. Uh, you mentioned earlier getting the perspectives of people in the audience. I want to leave a little bit of time for that on, on some of these. I wonder whether people do agree with you or not. And uh, Nalima, I mean. I know that from your, in your previous role, and of course you're still applying it, you looked at a lot of public management theory you know, when you were at LSE and professor of that. I mean, what lessons can we take from that um, about whether this, this uh, circle can be squared, right, between uh, formal accountability on the one hand and actually allowing autonomy for people um, to get the job done? I mean, in direct response maybe to Dan's mm. points also and bringing in the theoretical perspective there, I don't think sta um, empowering staff is necessarily giving them complete freedom. And public management theory has theorized bounds to discretion, bounded discretion, or the idea that you can structure flexibility so that staff empowerment, autonomy, decision-making has boundaries um, that enable judgment um, rather than simply constrain its use. And so Yuan Yuan Ang has written a book recently on, on chi Chinese development experience, effectively, and looked at bounds on Chinese bureaucratic discretion, what Chinese bureaucrats couldn't do and what they had to do. But within that, she said there was, broadly speaking, a certain amount of space to figure out how to accomplish certain goals. And the government made it very clear that innovation was permitted without, very much, without specifying exactly how it was to be done. She, her term was directed improvisation. Um, and so I think, you know, there is space in bureaucracies in the developing world as much as in Western world bureaucracy for judgment to be exercised, but for us to also set limits to that mm -hmm. exercise of that judgment. Um, but the dilemma between accountability and flexibility, more generally speaking, is a central dilemma. It's a basic governance challenge. Um, last week, the FT had an article essentially on whether decentralized autonomy in the NHS the NHS being one of the largest employers in Europe, could really be compatible with centralized controls and political accountability. How can staff in the NHS or anywhere else be responsive to local realities and local demands of their patients, but also be responsible for their actions? And it's true, in, in, the, day we, in the age we live in, the public is not ready to forsake accountability to mm. achieve flexibility, no matter how much rhetoric we talk about flexibility, uh, how we, we throw at flexibility. And so I think we need to be mindful of this. And in, in my view, my personal view, I think there's two ways you can go about it. One is to take 
minor modifications to programs um, that can really accommodate at the margins the desire for flexibility without really sacrificing the conventional notion of public accountability as control and compliance. So for example, within a particular project or program, create a specific um, pot of money for more riskier engagements. Um, you can also outsource risk to third-party contractors, thereby absolving the, the contracting mm -hmm. organization of blame. Um, and I think we, we try and do that, and I think that many development agencies work within that kind of style of trying to allow some flexibility but still maintain a traditional kind of understanding of accountability to the taxpayer. Mm. A more maximal approach, I think, would be to really attempt to try and change the public discourse on what we mean by accountability. Um, really change the narratives so that we, we, we embrace trust. We, we basically reject zero tolerance of risk mm. and we accept there is risk in the development endeavor. Um, and we, we are willing to tolerate exceptions to standard programmatic approaches, particularly, for example, in fragile states, which is the example you know, very prominent in, in Dan's book about um, highly unpredictable environments where maybe we do need more exceptions. Um, and so I think there, there are two approaches really to square that circle of the challenge between accountability and flexibility. Thanks, Nima. I mean, Val, in DFID, this is also a bit of a live issue, right? I mean, my, my, my own sense is that obviously it's historically um, pretty strongly decentralized, um, but that, you know, o over perhaps the last decade or so, that there's been a bit of a, a, a pulling back towards the center in different ways. For example, that heads of office can't spend as, as much, they can't sign off as much money anymore, and there's been a bit of a pullback towards that central power. I mean, how, how are you seeing that unfold in DFID at the moment, and to what extent do you feel that there are there is a kind of empowered accountability is, is sort of talked about in the, start, in the smart rules for, for DFID staff. Um, so I think, you know, your diagnosis is a pretty fair reflection of what I think if you ask most DFID staff, they'd probably say. Um, uh, and I really like this concept of bounding. I, I'm going to kind of steal that language, Nalima. Um, so so I, I guess as I think through this, and, and one of the reasons I took this job was to think through this, um, this challenge that faces us, I kind of increasingly try to separate this into two. So there's, there's the policy empowerment, and then there's the compliance task. It's, it's a bit of a caricature, but policy empowerment. So can a country head or an SRO in the field decide what to do? Pretty much, yes. They still have wide discretion and autonomy to decide what they want to do. And they are accountable for that. So if they choose to invest in a sensitive program and uh, it goes wrong, then it's they're accountable. They have to explain why it went wrong and, um, and account for that. So that's the, the, the what. We then have the, the how. And uh, there, and this is where I think it all gets a bit conflated, there I think we talk about empowering teams, but actually a lot of those are compliance tasks over which they have no discretion. They have to put a business case to a minister or they have to make sure their financial forecasts are uploaded on the system. They have to make sure their delivery chain is mapped. So we, but we still brigade it under that empowered accountability lexicon. Mm. And I think we just have to sort of pull those apart a bit more. And I think there are probably some efficiencies in some of that compliance stuff that I'm thinking about. Um, a lot of people in the room have probably mentioned this to people in DFID that we do some of that compliance stuff in a very inefficient way. We can sort of liberate our frontline teams to spend more time on the what, mm. if we can sort of change some of that how, where we're kind of, I think we just got to make sure the rhetoric matches the reality a bit on that. So, I mean, it's not a kind of uh, complete answer to that question, 
but it's something we're really thinking through now, and I think it, it kind of recognises a lot of what Malima was talking about. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for that. I mean, I'll come to Pablo, that's all right. And um, in, 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 your, in your book, you make quite a strong argument for um, what is probably currently a, a relatively marginal set of practices in the aid industry, right, for a different way of approaching things. Um, and, you know, what, you know, what you might argue is more transformative. So I wonder if you could just tell us, you know, what that is, very briefly, because we're a little short on time. Um, but then also how, you know, within your different way of thinking about things, you maintain this accountability. My understanding is you, you, you would want a significant amount of autonomy and uh, flexibility for people to act. Okay, so um, <clears throat> what is transformative? Transformative is, is building, to some extent, self-sustaining systems, right? Systems that will persist once the aid program pulls out. Inevitably, the aid program will pull out or the donor will pull out. And if you spend five years working on a sector, even if you reach all your targets, even if you're fully accountable, if that effort is not sustainable, effectively that's a wasted effort and a wasted amount of money, in my view. And I'm an aid supporter, okay? So I'm not a skeptic, but let's be realistic. Uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, effort in development should be shifting or could be shifting towards more catalytic interventions. Interventions that seek not to disperse funding necessarily into the local procurement system, but to build projects that, that identify and target opportunities for change working with local actors and that cultivate those local partnerships and empower those local actors who are going to stay there after the consultants leave and the different advisors leave. I think this is completely possible under the current system of compliance mechanisms in DFID, for instance. And we, we talk about DFID, this is a good problem to have. Other donors are not really even talking about effectiveness. Okay, so this is a good conversation to have. You can still have all your compliance requirements and, and all your accountability framework if you uh, change three assumptions or you allow for three changes in the way you, we think. One, um, learning programs have greater overhead costs. You need more staff time devoted to capturing lessons, facilitating learning and reflection, and especially if you want to be transparent, putting things on paper and disseminating it to the right audience, okay? So that means that your VFM section of your quarterly report cannot just be your staffing costs and what that is. Two, programs need to be built in such a way that we expect that a certain percentage of activities within a program will fail, inevitably. Right? And then our task is to properly identify which ones are failing and which ones are succeeding, why, and learn and improve. Third, and this is going to sound really, really disappointing to some people, the, maybe the objective of some DFID programs is to lay the groundwork for a future DFID program. There are some reform contexts that are so hard to tackle that the best that you can hope for right now is to begin building a constituency for change. That means that the objective of a program should not be uh, an immediate change in policy or a change in, in uh, you know, some quantifiable outcome, but a changing in the foundations that will allow for a better DFID program to be built in three to five years. I think all of this is possible, but unfortunately a lot of this is reliant on personality and personal relationships, particularly because providers, whether they're firms or charities, feel accountability in a contractual sense and in a reputational sense and they may be very afraid to, s to do some of these things lest they risk their reputation and their ability to bid on future projects. So if DFID creates, uh, DFID advisors or DFID teams create a more welcoming space 
you can still be fully accountable and creative and transformative, but and more honest, maybe. I think this is happening right now. It's not systematic, but it can happen. Thanks, Pablo. That's really helpful. Unless anyone has anything pressing on the panel, I'd like to open up to the, the Q&A. Um, so we're gonna take, we'll take three, three questions. We have about 30 minutes, roughly, maybe just under. Uh, we'll take three questions. Um, we, we only have 30 minutes, so as much as possible, please do keep your questions short uh, or comments short and the answers quite short as well so that we can get as much uh, discussion uh, as possible. So we're going to go for gender balance. So ideally, I'd like to come to a lady first if anyone has a question. Anyone? There, Lenny. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll take one from Lenny, one from Ben, and then I have one um, from online as well. So. I haven't been called a lady for a while, a so lady. thank you for that, yeah. Craig. Um, <laughs> Uh, Lenny Wild from ODI. I mean, really rich set of discussions. I, I guess two quick reflections, and and there are some questions. There's a question in there too. One is, I do feel like we need to just get rid of some of the myths that are out there. You know, a that there has really been accountability for results thus far, because I think that's questionable, and that accountability in itself can be inherently incompatible with flexibility, judgment adaptation and I feel like those things still pop up um, you know it seems to me that one of the problems we face across a whole realm of development practice is actually not enough accountability for results and impact because those things are hard to do we tend to default to accountability for inputs and outputs you know a number of teachers trained and in schools not the quality of education outcomes of children and I think if we actually say we're going to get really serious about accountability for results to me that then becomes it then becomes very obvious that what you're in is a space that's about accountability for learning for making the best decisions based on the best available that you evidence that you have for the professional judgment you bring to bear on that and for the ways in which you show that you are learning and changing your approach in response to the evidence that you get over time. So I think let's just, can we just try to kill off those myths <laughs> and replace them with some of those realities? I think the other point that perhaps we haven't heard so much from, um, from those on the panel, would be good to perhaps reflect a bit more, is, the, is about the who. So who is it, you know, when we're talking about empowerment, who do we want to empower at different levels? I think there is an interesting debate about how decentralized, for example, if it is in practice now, and what some of the challenges about how you manage that decentralization while, while keeping the upwards accompanied to ministers are. But I actually think the real prize out there is that is all the people that are actually delivering change on the ground. And what are the really good examples we have of the good models for empowerment and what, um, and, and what works? I mean, there's actually, I think there are copies in the foyer of a recent case study, a colleague of mine, David Booth, has done looking at DFID's, I think it's the Economic Policy Incubator Project in Nepal, which actually essentially gets a bunch of very strong Nepali economists to think tactically, carefully, strategically about key blockages to economic change that they can start to unlock and to build coalitions and think about sort of clever ways of starting to open up change. We documented something very similar in the Philippines that actually led to very big um, shifts in practice around land reform, around um, funds going into health expenditure for the poorest. So I think, you know, can we talk a bit about who, what, what's working around good models of empowerment and for who would be great? Thanks. Uh, ben? Thanks. Um, just a few 
reflections, really. And um, this, this whole point of every penny should be counted and should count. I think uh, there's a slightly Orwellian point here, which is that not all pennies are equal. Um, so specifically in relation to the non-diffid spend of, of ODA. So last year, non-diffid spend of ODA reached something like 26%. If you tally that up, that's $4.8 billion. That, that would make non-DFID spend the eighth, eighth largest OECD DAC donor, um, larger than every other donor apart from Canada. But when you look at how that money is actually accounted for and assessed, is it subject to the same level of scrutiny as the rest of the DFID spend? And it's possible to find some ICAI reviews that look at how other departments spend that ODA, but it's very hard to find independent evaluations very hard to find results-based frameworks that talk about how the Home Office spend money or how the FCA spend money. In fact, informal conversations I had with an FCA official about whether or not they use log frames in results-based management were, went along the lines of, well, diffid are bureaucrats, we're diplomats, we think about change rather differently. Um, but I think, so there's a, there's a point here that we are talking about the politics of results, but it is applied very unevenly across different organisations. What you can do with the politics of results, how you can play with that space, really depends on who you are, where you sit, what public trust there is in your role and in your institution, and how you then carry that. And I think if we, before we can really talk about this seriously in a rational way in this kind of context, we need to be really transparent about that. Okay, so we're, we're going to um, come to our panel uh, briefly. I want to add, add a question that's come in about the, the, from Anonymous, so I don't, I don't know gender or who they are at all, actually, um, but... They ask what is and should be the relationship between the media and development agencies. And I think it's, it's quite a relevant question in, in the light of the results and value for money discussions as well. It's how, how development organisations talk about what they do. Um, so we've got, we've got a range of questions here, right? We've got, are, we, are there too many myths in the discussion we've had so far today? Do we need to be talking more about accountability for learning? Who, who is actually being empowered, right? Who are we talking about? Um, I'd argue probably Dan should take that one on. Um, and then Ben, you know, talking about the space, um, the, the politics of results and whether it's actually being applied fairly, accountability is being applied fairly across the board. Um, Dan, can I come to you first on who, who's being empowered and then we'll come to the panel on, on, on the rest. Yeah, so there's both the question of who is being empowered and who, who ought be. And I guess the way I'd frame it is that uh, constraint rolls downhill, but autonomy needn't. You know, so that is to say, if the organization at level one, this to me is kind of the subtext of the conversation about the merger that we started with, uh, that we started this conversation with. So if there's constraint at a high level, I need to constrain the, le the next level down, um, and then that level needs to constrain the level below it. Uh, however, if I empower people at the level below, uh, then those folks can decide when it's appropriate to engage in what kinds of management and accountability structures, right? And so, you know, the question of who we should empower is the lowest level that we think is kind of globally responsible for the project or for the performance of the intervention, right? So, you know, in the case of DFID, it seems to me we could think about the country office in just the way we currently do, uh, but, uh, but make part of that empowerment a greater... Uh, I don't know, a greater discretion inside that office about how we manage uh, those who are actually implementing the work, both in terms of form and in terms of day-to-day -day, uh, sort of management. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, to touch just very briefly on Lenny's question, 
you know, the tension between accountability and uh, flexibility or the, the apparent, but uh, I agree with Lenny, kind of fictional tension between accountability and flexibility is resolved differently for different kinds of tasks uh, in different kinds of settings. When we're talking about educating kids, we shift from thinking about outputs to thinking about outcomes uh, in just the way that Lenny is suggesting. When we're thinking about something that feels a little bit more like Pablo's French Revolution, uh, we think about accountability in a very different uh, kind of way. And the who is the people closest to the ground who we trust to make the decisions and who have a kind of holistic view of the performance of whatever the intervention is we're talking about. Thanks, Dan. I'm, I'm being a bit selective here, actually, but I'd like to come to Pablo on the media question, because I know that that's something you've thought and, and written about quite a lot. So, you know, how do you see that relationship? Well, okay, so I've, I recently wrote something for Bond, so you can go to their website. I have a post on, on, on this precisely, but, you know, maybe Ben's question is a good answer. Maybe we should be saying to the media that aid tends to be more transparently and accountably managed than funds in other public organizations in the state, including the welfare state. Why not say that? Maybe we should be, to go back to, to Lenny's story, maybe we should be talking more about the activists and reformers and the intellectuals on the ground who are trying to make their countries better and use those stories to say, you know, this is, these are not starving children. These are not tsunami victims, which is, you know, people understand humanitarianism, but people don't understand development. They don't understand that a room full of economists thinking tactically may change the politics of a country. And we haven't explained that properly, I think. Um, it, UK is a, is a, I would say, is a, is an, uh, it's, it's strange in that the media actually pays attention to aid. In other countries, it really doesn't happen that much. Um, and that's the, the bane, maybe, of having an independent ministry, or maybe the bane of the 0.7% in a, in a country that is not a northern country. Um, maybe the media should not be talking about foreign aid at all, because it's really not that important to people's lives. It, it doesn't rank highly in anybody's priorities in terms of the problems facing in their lives. But we can take a bit of ownership of the narrative. We can develop a counter-narrative in the media. And that begins by this, by being more proactive and less reactive. Though we were joking before, maybe the single most important change in British aid will be the replacement of the Daily Mail editor come November. <laughs> and that is something that we cannot control. So maybe we are slaves to the, to the tabloids after all. <laughs> Optimistic take. Um, uh, OK, so we had, I think the ones we haven't touched on as much is um, on the other government departments point. Um, Lima, did you, have, did you want to come in on that? Um, I can do you need someone to, but I, I do have a, a, some thoughts on that. But, Go for it. Um, so, I mean, the, the IDC inquiry into ODA administration by the government department just reported a, a few weeks ago, and I think they too shared your concerns around the accountability structures and transparency of the spending that was going on beyond DFID. And if, if DFID is one of the most tightly kind of monitored <laughs> government agencies, I, I would say, in the UK, <laughs> Perhaps these doors are on the other end of that spectrum. Um, and I think you alluded in your comments, Val, to DFID playing much more of a technical role advising other government departments and helping them spend that money. So not only is there a question of what are they doing, but do they have to even have the capacity to do what they are doing? And I think there's a recognition that that capacity needs to be built, hence DFID's involvement. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in even how, the, how, this, how we got to this point. 
<laughs> in 2018. I mean, in 2015, we had the new UK aid strategy, aid in the national interest, which, as far as I understand, Fisher had relatively minimal input into, was largely kind of written by, by the Treasury, um, in fact, where this target of the 30% of all ODA should be spent by other government departments. I think the intention is good. It is meant to try and increase the whole of government conversation and coordination, but against the backdrop of weak capacity, questions of accountability, um, I think that do need to be addressed. Um, so I, I share some of your concerns, but I recognize that, that the IDC report will hopefully stimulate greater scrutiny and greater conversation around this issue, around accountability of the rest of the ODA piece. Just a brief uh, comment from you, Val, if, if you don't mind. I mean, um, you mentioned earlier, in fact, I think the word you use, some sort of technical assistance to other government departments, but kind of reflecting on, on Ben's point, I mean, and, and the question I asked you earlier, what is DFID's role in helping other government departments become more accountable for the aid that they spend? So that's a multi-layered question. Um, so what is DFID's role and then the accountability? Uh, so fr frankly, the way public finance works, we are not accountable. DFID, uh, each department is accountable for its own spend, right? And that is a fundamental principle of public financial management. And um, so, you know, the Treasury will argue very strongly that that is the case. So the, the accountability point, I think, is a difficult one. But also, we shouldn't get too distracted by that. I, I guess um, there's a lot DFID can do. We're working with a lot of the departments in terms of helping them with the systems, with their um, design processes, the smart walls, all that, um, their technical solutions. Uh, but I guess the point I want to make is, DFID has been on this journey for 21 years, right? We've been thinking about this, evolving our systems, our processes for a long time. The big uplift in these funds are two years ago, three years ago, when the Prosperity Fund was signed. So they are much earlier in that maturity journey. I think the CSSF, the Conflict Fund, does good stuff. Like it, the idea behind a cross-government fund to help support some really difficult stuff in difficult places is a good one. It brings together departments. It potentially has a higher risk appetite than DFID as a freestanding department would have. Um, so it can take more riskier judgments. So I think there's a lot of good, the Prosperity Fund similarly has good things. The International Climate Fund, which we never talk about, also does really good work. And they're all cross-government funds. So I think there's a lot of good there. And I just, I, I worry that sometimes we underestimate that these, how young they are, and we've got to help them get to the point where DFID is. And, but that doesn't mean just absorbing them into DFID or throwing them away or, or whatever, but just working with them to improve. And that's kind of, it's not a direct answer because we're still working out sure. what that means in practice, but that's our kind of ethos going into this. That's really helpful. So I saw one hand, Duncan's one question, question from the lady at the front, uh, and I'll take one from over here as well. Thanks. Um, Duncan Green from Oxfam. I mean, lots of discussion of accountability, but in quite general sort of swirly terms. And I, I've always thought, I'm just wondering who is actually pressuring for accountability? Uh, and who among those people who are pressuring for accountability? Is it parliament? Is it ministers? Is it actually something we've got in our own heads, a sort of accountability demon that we have to try and placate? Um, how many of those points of pressure are actually amenable to evidence for or against? You're not going to convince the Daily Mail to change its view on aid by giving more, better information about your aid programmes. I suspect that's true of a lot of the people who are demanding accountability. So I think this is a question for Val, I'm afraid. Um, but where is it actually coming from and who's actually listening to any of the information you produce? Thank you. Lady here, please. 
Thank you. I'm Alison, Alison Demburath. I'm the technical director at Options. I've worked in development for about 25 years, most of it overseas. Um, and I agree with Pablo's point about um, aid should be catalytic. The most useful things I've seen aid for is when it funds risk because poorer governments, um, they're struggling just to develop, deliver basic services and we can't expect them or many of them to um, fund risky things even though that might result in transformation. So I think that's useful. But um, at this stage, what I'm seeing is that the culture within DFID in terms of SROs is um, because the performance management is quite rigid is they are very risk averse. So two things, can the design of programs um, be designed to take risk and um, hopefully affect greater change but be ready to fail and can performance management culture within DFID change to support risk? Thank you. Thank you. We have one more, one more question from Jap here. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering in your time in DFID if there had ever been any conversations about perhaps having a fund which emphasized uh, the uh, judgment, if you will, side of uh, aid spend uh, as opposed to the payments by results side of the aid spend. So, for example, calling it an R&D fund or something where you have uh, uh, less, uh, more slack on the rain, so to speak, which you measure perhaps on a 10 and 20 year basis. So we could actually compare uh, what we've got now with what uh, possible futures could exist, um, if that makes sense. Thanks very much. So uh, I'm going to sne sneak in one more for, so probably one question each if that's all right, and fairly, fairly short answers so we can get a couple more comments in. Um, Shrutis Patel, um, who's following online, asks, um, it seems that, and we've talked about this a lot, that the the basis of accountability and results measurement is trust. Trust keeps coming up. Um, but then, you know, what are, the, what are some good practice guidelines? Do we actually have good examples we can share? We say, well, they've got that right. You mentioned CD before. Are there things that can be shared um, with our online audience as well that, that actually start to give some signals of how you do that? Um, so that, that would be really helpful to know. So anyone got a particular burning desire to take on one of those questions? If not, I can direct them at you. Anyone? It's risky if I, you let me do it. So, <laughs> Go on then, Val. You want me to... You, I'm, I, in your hands, Craig. Okay, fine. Um, Val, who's pressing for accountability? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. So um, I guess at one level it's me. Um, <laughs> uh, I am responsible for uh, quite a lot of the systems and rules. Um, now, I think, uh, and again, it comes down to uh, people, SROs are accountable for a series of different things, and we conflate all of that. So um, are they accountable? So in the, in the kind of 2015, 2010 era, um, when was the manifesto? 2015 era. Um, people were very accountable for delivering their targets. So if you were going off track on your targets, you had to explain why. You had to then have a plan for getting them on track. So targets... That was a very strong accountability for targets, which is actually quite easy to do organizationally. We can collect the data, we can push it back out. As we kind of evolve beyond that, uh, it gets a lot, lot harder to answer that question, actually. Um, on the policy side, uh, I think going back to a point Dan made, incentives become um, as important, potentially, as the accountability side. So what are you 
incentivizing people to do up front. In a way, the accountability comes after that, but the incentives that really matter. And I think we have to think a lot more about incentives and what are we asking our teams to focus on. Um, then it's different on the compliance side. If a team breaches its budgets, then I'm holding them to account very strongly on all of the compliance tasks. If they do not get their business case approved by a minister at the right level and they start spending against it, then they are very accountable for that to me and to, I, I am acting on behalf of, you know, Matthew as the permanent secretary. So for that kind of stuff, the compliance is very hard and um, yeah, it's, it's non-negotiable. So I hold them to account for that. So I think, it, again, it comes back to this distinction between accountability for compliance and accountability for policy. And uh, I think it's much tougher on compliance than on uh, policy. Thanks, Val. So, um, Nalima, I'd like, to, I'd like to turn to you. I mean, we had questions there around performance management and risk. So you have an answer ready for that one? Then you can, yeah, please go ahead. This is a response to Alison. Yeah, half of the question on risk, the, fir the first half really, that can we design programs to, to take on risk? Um, I think we can uh, design programs, but I think you need a number of kind of pieces to be aligned in order to design them. Um, the first, I think, is we have to be able to communicate risk. And in, in a context, in, in this country, that's very hard to do, um, given the media. Um, the role of the media. So I think, but we have to be able to communicate that risk and that um, the risk of failure in particular, um, and really explain to the public that you know if we have we have zero tolerance of risk, right? We 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 want risk essentially in our programs, um, and I think we also need to encourage informed risk taking. Um, by which I mean we judge on the basis of the judgments taken at the time at which they're taken, um, and and have people's backs. Um, and so creating internal cultures that can support that is very important. Um, I think we have to also inspire people, um, by which I mean tackling wicked problems that development tries to tackle, we need to take risk. Um, and, and lastly, I, and I'm not a fan of corporate managerialism in the public sector, but I think we can look to the, to the private sector effectively and look at how um, the private sector encourages incubation of ideas, innovation, and, and argue for more of that in the public sector. So, I mean, my, my solutions may not be as tangible, but I think there is a, a cultural a communication strategy and kind of this idea of informed risk-taking that needs to really filter down to the programmatic level. Yeah. I think it'd be, it would, thanks, Nima. It'd be good to hear from both Pablo and Dan very briefly. We're a bit short on time now. Um, but where you've seen examples of programs that have some slack on the reins, uh, as the gentleman over here put it, right? Like, what, what does that actually look, look like in practice? Because both of you are advocating for, essentially, more slack on the reins. Well, I work as an advisor on a, on a flexible DFID program. And, you know, we struggled for, for two years to develop a theory of change and a concept and a portfolio approach and a flexible lock frame. And you know, it's been a lot of hard work, but I think it's been incredibly rewarding because it's enabled us to move quickly away from non-performing interventions and to take advantage of opportunities that arise and to plan for contingency. Um, but that's what I would call a portfolio approach, right? So that uh, in which the law firm has to be a bit agnostic about the specific activities and the specific timing. That, that level of reporting and accountability has to be 
taken down to the level of activities and the level of interventions where advisors are actually on the ground working with local partners. And the, what the program delivers on is a number of more general um, uh, issues or problems that are tackled, like wicked problems, as you were saying, in a more, in a, sen in a sense of the, you know, a greater scope over time and a greater depth of impact over time. So we think a lot about attribution, mm -hmm. you know, and to the question that, that Lenny was asking about, what is accountability really like? You can have the best numbers in the world, but if you don't have an, a, a good attribution of your impact, those numbers are meaningless. So interesting programs, to my mind right now, focus on, on learning and on, on working with the current tools in, in M&E to integrate them ac across the program and to build something that is a tiny bit more flexible, you know, but that requires a funding modality that is a tiny bit more flexible, that requires an SRO who is willing to go to, to battle for you, that requires a provider who's not too scared <laughs> of making mistakes. It's a bit of a, of a mixture of factors, but I think it's totally doable, and to its credit, uh, DFID is, to my knowledge, currently tendering innovative programs, so this is a trend, at least in governance, that I'm seeing uh, within DFID. Great, thanks. Uh, Dan, just briefly to you, I know that um, you have this huge data set that you use to make a lot of your arguments in the book. So I'd be interested to know what that, I mean, the, the key <coughs> argument is that greater autonomy ultimately leads to greater effectiveness, right? But, um, you know, what, what else can your data set tell us about this? I mean, was there any correlation, for example, with longer term programs? Is there other things you can unpack or examples you can unpack which give us a bit more of a flavor of that? Yeah, those are, those are great questions about the big data. Um, and I, but, you know, I think I kind of want to turn to the case studies, which also form part of the book, right? So in, uh, in four pairs of case studies, I look at basically uh, interventions attempting to accomplish similar things that uh, use, to steal the expression here, dissimilar slack uh, on the reins, right? Where uh, the horses are given more or less room to kind of guide themselves. Um, and, you know, what does it look like to guide yourself? What are features of that? Well. You know, one thing that comes up a lot is uh, a kind of empowered lowest level. So things like empowered advisors who are reporting back uh, on targets that they themselves have set. Um, I also see examples of, frankly, what I would call gaming metrics to have more successful projects. So, you know, we choose a metric that we think is going to be met anyway. Uh, there's a case, uh, actually a different case, where uh, an Office of Financial Management's target is reduction in uh, child mortality in a post-conflict country. That number is going to go down anyway, whatever happens with regards to the project, so it gets to declare success anyway. And so it then can navigate in a variety of ways. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, of what I think is the maybe most kind of, I don't know, modelable example, um, of all places in a USAID project where uh, we have an uncertain environment and not a lot of trust, uh, in the system and to a contractor. Uh, what USA does is put project staff, put DFID staff, I should say, or put, I'm sorry, USAID staff uh, in the same office as the implementer, right? So we don't trust our implementer, fine. We're going to co-locate with our implementer, and now we're going to experience the same reality, mm. right? We're going to be able to make the same judgments. Now when you come for approval for a revision, well, I will know the same things you do. And in a sense, we're going to guide this project together. And you know, to me, that's an example of how, without changing any of the political structures or organizational structures in kind of a broad sense, uh, we can get uh, more judgment and more effective slack and more kind of local information uh, into a project when need be. 
Thanks, Dan. So we're, we're so short on time. Thankfully, we do have uh, drinks outside, and so you can come up and talk to some of the, the, the panelists and have a bit of discussion about it, apart from Dan, sadly, who won't be joining us virtually for drinks. Yeah. So um, <laughs> what I would like to do is give each of the panelists just <laughs> no drinks for you. You can have one there, actually, and we'll just watch. Um, um, so just like under a minute. Like if you, want, if you want people here to take away one thing from the discussions we've had today, you have one thing you want to say to make, stick with people, now is your chance to say it. It's a bit like an you know, end of political debates. This is the moment to convince the people of your argument. Um, so, I'll, Dan, from far away, I'm going to start with you if that's okay. Sure. Uh, I guess my, my uh, minute would be one change is possible. It happens all the time, even in contexts where we think things can't change. Uh, they do over time and across agency. Two, we can learn about that chain by thinking about variation within our projects across agencies over time, et cetera. Uh, and that three, uh, we really need to think harder about not kind of, I don't know, this sort of buzzwordy um, big think of development, but of what it takes to make an individual project work uh, and be sort of razor focused uh, on what it takes to make a project successful and what it takes to enable those things. And that's going to be different by the project uh, and by the thing, but often uh, it's going to involve thinking more about the error of too much control uh, and what we need to do to reduce controls to get greater results and more accountability on the ground. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Nalima. Yeah, I guess the, the main takeaway for me would be that structure is not really, no panacea to the problems that development agencies face. Um, and that the title of this session, I think, was um, development agency from reform to renewal, mm -hmm. right? So essentially I would distinguish those two. Um, reform is not the same as renewal. Changing organograms, for example, can become little more than technocratic fiddling if it's not accompanied by new political configurations to support the change and really make it work. So real renewal, I think, requires a lot more political courage. Um, it requires cultivating really new mentalities, new narratives, and um, and new political sources of support. Um, and really, we should think about cultivating those first before embarking on costly reform processes. Um, and those reform processes, uh, those renewal processes, should be anchored really in the reality of working on the front line, I would say, as opposed to headquarters. Thanks, that's really helpful. Val, over to you. Uh, well, thank you to my panelists, first of all, because I think it was a really rich discussion. Um, I guess main message for me, or main takeaways, firstly, uh, it's right that we in DFID ask ourselves a lot of the challenge that we're getting and I think we are asking ourselves those questions and we are on this kind of journey of renewal um, uh, in a lot of the areas we've talked about, whether that's uh, the cross-government space, the results, uh, even our kind of empowered accountability model. So those are all kind of journeys of change we are on. Uh, one thing I've learned doing this role for a year is change is not fast in a 3,000 strong bureaucracy. Um, but there is a will to change those things. And um, I, I just, I'm very keen for us to keep having this challenge, really. Thanks, Will. Hello. Um, well, DFID is worth saving, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in Madrid recently, and people in Spain, the most enlightened practitioners in development, look to the UK with envy. You know, and that happens in many other countries. Uh, but then, that means that those of us who are not in DFID should stop talking to DFID and should start talking about DFID. 
to the rest of the country. I think those of us who are part of the aid ecosystem need to start assuming some responsibility for our future instead of merely delegating it to, the, to those who are public servants. Thanks, Pablo. That's really helpful. It's been really fascinating for me during this event just to hear how often so many of the terms that get criticized, results and value for money, even the question of merges and everything else, actually, for most people, it's just the function they perform anyway, right? So we can criticize the terms, but very few want to argue with the basic premise that we have to deliver results and that value for money is important and that actually structure is not as important as what you do with it. So there's a kind of bit of a task, I think, to move, move it beyond that based on discussions like this into kind of what does that what do these change processes actually look like, an alternative vision for results, an alternative vision for value for money, for example. Um, so we're, we're all finished now. So I want to thank the panelists in particular for their, for their excellent contributions and for all of you for your questions and coming and uh, the, the people online. I hope I got through enough questions. Um, there's a drinks reception, so you can come and grill the panelists or have a, a further debate. Um, and please join me now in, in thanking them for, for coming along and the contributions. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.